ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, an elderly man with a poor memory. US investigators deliver a devastating assessment of President Joe Biden over his willful mishandling of classified documents. Also, a report outlines tips on getting a better deal on selling rooftop solar back to the grid and swiping your credit card to see an emergency doctor quickly. Private clinics cropping up in response to long wait times. I can see anything from an unwell three-month-old child who's having fevers to a 90-year-old patient who might need to be admitted to a hospital. So it's a shared cost model where there is a patient contributing to their health. Thanks for your company. A legal victory has turned into a political disaster for US President Joe Biden, who's been forced to defend his mental faculties after a special counsel investigation raised serious questions about his memory. The probe concluded charges won't be laid against Mr Biden, despite finding he willfully mishandled classified documents. Part of the reason for the free pass, the 81-year-old president's memory problems would make it difficult for a jury to convict him. In response, Mr Biden launched an angry defence of his ability to serve as president, but things only got worse as he confused Mexico and Egypt in response to a question about the Middle East. Samantha Donovan reports. The special counsel found Joe Biden carelessly kept classified documents at his home after finishing his term as vice president in the Obama administration. But he decided not to pursue charges against the president, partly because he'd present himself to the jury as, quote, a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. The special counsel is Republican Robert Hur, and his assessment clearly angered Mr Biden, who called a snap White House media conference. For any extraneous commentary, they don't know what they're talking about. It has no place in this report. The bottom line is the matter is now closed. I'm going to continue what I've always focused on, my job of being president of the United States of America. Now, thank you, and I'll take some questions. And that's when things got rowdy. Totally out. Is your memory, and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. That's uh, that's you that's. Your memory has gotten worse, Mr. No, President. My memory is not good. My memory is fine. Mr. Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President, for months when you were asked about your age, you would respond with the words, "Watch me." Many American people have been watching, and they have expressed concerns about your age. That is they, your judgment. They, that is your is judgment. That is not the judgment concerns. of the press. They express concerns about your mental acuity. They say that you are too old. Mr. President, in December, you told me that you believe there are many other Democrats who could defeat Donald Trump. So why does it have to be you now? Why, what is your answer to that question? Because I'm the most qualified person in this country to be President of the United States and finish the job I started. 
this point, Mr Biden's minder tried to wrap up the press conference, but reporters continued to bombard him with questions which the President agreed to answer. After a few moments, he again walked away from the lectern and went to leave the room when a reporter asked for an update on the Israel-Gaza war and the hostage negotiations. And that's when the President dropped a clangour. Initially, the President of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. I convinced him to open the gate. He meant to say the president of Egypt, not Mexico. Commentators in the US have seized on the gaffe. Jeffrey Tubin is a former federal prosecutor and a legal analyst for CNN. Mexico? Where did that come from? I mean, that's the only thing anyone's going to remember from this. Some of the president's supporters are suggesting the Republican special counsel, Robert Hur would have been well aware his comments on Mr Biden's memory and age could damage his chances of re-election. Richard Painter is a professor of law at the University of Minnesota and was the chief White House ethics lawyer for President George W. Bush. He agrees that's something to keep in mind. I, I think that is that we should take everything into consideration here. But I think President Biden needs to do more to confront this issue than simply get upset about it at a news conference hours after the special counsel's report is released. That's Professor Richard Painter from the University of Minnesota, Samantha Donovan reporting. Or Nayalu, um, uh, Nay, excuse me, Nayala Amaru is a strategist for the Democratic Party based in New York, and she joined me earlier. Nayela Amaru, thank you so much for being with us. Could this be the end of Joe Biden's tilt at a second term? I think it's a bit premature to think that it could potentially be the end. Um, however, you know, today's events is certainly not helping his case in terms of how he wants to position himself to be perceived by the American public as a competent political leader who is fully prepared for a second term. I think what I will be watching for, along with um, many other Americans, is if this report has any longevity in the news cycle here in America, if it has legs, then it could probably um, do some significant damage as Joe Biden, again, is trying to position himself with this type of information plaguing his campaign. The special counsel report was not good for Joe Biden, but the attempted clean-up job was arguably much worse. How much more damaging was that, do you think? It depends on how people, you know, will perceive it and also how the Biden camp will want to spin it, considering the argument that he's trying to push back and considering moments like that just reinforce that message that, hey, this guy is up there and cognitively he may not be prepared to lead the quote unquote free world, mm. um, again, is not necessarily doing him any favours in the case that he's trying to convince to the American people. And, and I guess the other factor here is that this is not a new uh, accusation or, or, or element of, of Joe Biden's presidency that, that his opponents have been focusing on. Even before 2020, there were questions raised by his opponents about his mental acuity. Does this potentially kind of codify those concerns in, in a formal way? You know, I think I think it's important to make a distinction between um, his age and mental acuity. And I think this type of situation kind of clarifies the difference between the two. 
Um, most of us, you know, may experience people who are his age and much older, um, who are sharp, who are sharp as tacks, right? Mm-hmm. However, four years in, now that he has a microphone in front of his face because he's the president, um, there's ample opportunity for these types of moments and these types of situations to not just be caught on the public record, but to be shown repeatedly over and over and over again. And again, it's these types of situations and these types of mistakes that can be um, hurtful to, again, this narrative that he's been trying to push back for the past four years. It makes his argument that much more difficult to prove that he is capable when these types of mistakes happen. Mm. As you stress, it, it's too early to say that this is the, the end for Joe Biden, and, and that is absolutely true. But should things get worse for him politically, substantially worse, and there needed to be in the democratic strategists' minds a change, how would that happen, considering that we're well into the primaries already? Absolutely. I think that process would take place in two different ways. There's clearly the legal procedural way. However, legal process aside, I think the more important conversation is the political process of what is the message that the Democratic National Party is sending to Americans on both sides of the aisle when something as drastic as a measure as that would have to happen? How then does any candidate, regardless of how qualified or popular they may be, make the case to the American people and win an election with a false start that was possibly preventable to begin with? It's a hard case to win. Yeah, I mean, you say it could have been preventable, and this is all hypothetical, I stress, but what is your assessment of how this has been handled? Should there have been a handover at some point? I think the way that it's been handled has been a has been a disappointment in the sense that it could have been handled better. Listen, I don't think that it's necessarily an inspiring story for America to look at the two candidates that we will most likely be voting for again. Um, which will most likely be the candidates that we voted for or against four years ago, right? Um, there hasn't been um, an investment in the Democratic bench. There hasn't really been um, at least a public conversation in terms of succession leadership building of, you know, if Biden should choose not to run or choose to step down, who is that next person? There has not been a public conversation in terms of how the Democratic Party wants to invest in next generation leadership Mm -hmm. and make sure that no matter where we are in terms of the presidency or governorship, what have you, that we have someone who is ready, willing, and able to step up and serve and not have those moments be be dependent on situations like this possibly. Well, well, who who would be the front runners? I I read that Michelle Obama has been attracting significant donations, even though she's not in the running officially. Same for, for Gavin Newsom of California, Gretchen Whitmer, of Michigan has been talked about too. Absolutely. Um, I don't want to put any money on any, any of the racehorses, but listen, you know, uh, American voters, you know, we like our candidates for our own reasons. You know, Michelle Obama and um, Gavin Newsom and Gretchen Whitmer are all incredible people in, in, in their own rights. But the type of, you know, voter that is drawn to Obama is maybe a different voter that's drawn to Newsom. Um, and that's what the electoral process is about, right? Branding yourself as a candidate, establishing who your base of voters is, and making sure that your campaign message and your policy agenda 
builds that base as big as possible so that you can win the votes that you need to win the primary. Nayela Amaru, great to have your insights. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And that's Democratic Party strategist Nayela Amaru. The sit-down interview between America's right-wing commentator Tucker Carlson and Russian President Vladimir Putin was highly anticipated, and it's the first interview the president's done with Western media since the war began. In the two-hour recording, the president said Russia has no interest in invading other countries, and he repeated other messages we have heard before. It may have been a letdown for some viewers, but one expert says it did give a concerning glimpse into his long-term goals for the war. Isabel Masali reports. As he promoted an interview with the Russian president, ex-Fox News host Tucker Carlson explains why he took the risky trip to Moscow. Most Americans have no idea why Putin invaded Ukraine or what his goals are now. But if you're hoping for that answer, you'll first need to sit through a history lesson. The first 20 minutes, is, I was just laughing out loud because it's like Tucker Carlson's got this kind of comedic face on, right, where he's kind of like looking all serious. Will Partlett is a long-time Russia watcher and associate professor at the University of Melbourne. Meanwhile, he's talking about Rurik and everyone. You just, you get these kind of vibes of like your drunk uncle who's like 85 years old at, at, at like, you know, at Christmas dinner telling you the history of like, you know, this is what happened when Captain Cook arrived and blah, blah. You know, and just like, oh my God. He says there was a moment in the more than two-hour interview that raised a lot of eyebrows. With some statements that parts of Western Ukraine are also part of Russia, uh, i.e. That, they, that Russia intends to conquer these parts. So, you know, I think one of the takeaways and one of the, part of the key takeaways is that Russia's not finished here. You know, where the current kind of trench lines are is the Russians and, and Putin in particular do not intend to stop. They intend to keep going to parts of, and he said parts of Western Ukraine. So we'll sit to see what those are. He wasn't specific about it, but it does suggest that the kind of maximalist uh, goals, uh, including denazification, which likely includes getting rid of uh, the current president, Vladimir Zelensky, continue to be in place. And to Professor Partlett, that suggests we won't see a deal to end the war anytime soon. The rest of the interview sees the Russian president speaking through a translator repeat messages he's delivered since the invasion. From the outside, it seems like this could devolve or evolve into something that brings the entire world into conflict and could um, initiate some, a nuclear launch. And so why don't you just call Biden and say, let's work this out? I will tell you what we are saying on this matter and what we are conveying to the US leadership. If you really want to stop fighting, you need to stop supplying weapons. It will be over within a few weeks. That's it. And then we can agree on some terms. Vladimir Putin told the conservative talk show host he has no interest in invading other countries such as Poland, Latvia or other NATO allies. But he took aim at the expansion of the US-dominated military alliance, NATO. The promise was that NATO would not expand eastward. But it happened five times. There were five waves of expansion. We tolerated all that. We were trying to persuade them. We were saying, please don't. We are as bourgeois now as you are. We are a market economy and there is no communist party power. This, this NATO story is one that plays well, again, with, with Trump. Uh, Republicans and 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 kind of you know those who are 
somewhat conspiratorially minded who think that America has played too much of a role in trying to be the policeman of the world. So it's you know again these these are claims that have been made over and over again, and of course Putin is just re he's making them again, and of course in this context he's trying to of course kind of persuade in a very highly charged political situation, which is the 2024 presidential elections. Professor Partlett says that timing played a big role in Putin's motivation for his first interview with Western media since the war began. The interviewer he chose, Tucker Carlson, has previously defended Russia's invasion. You know, very much the Russians would like Trump to win because if Trump wins, we're likely to see less aid to Ukraine, if, if any at all. And of course, the less aid that goes to Ukraine from the United States the more likely it is that Ukraine will will actually start to really lose this war. Back in Ukraine, the war continues with a different top military commander. Valery Zaluzhny has been axed by the Ukrainian president in what Professor Partlett attributes to a difference in messaging strategies. They need to maintain a kind of unified front that they can win this war, that they can push the Russians back. The new uh, armed forces uh, leader now will be much more on on the same page as, as the president Zelensky in talking about the war and in prosecuting how the war is, is carried out in, in this year, which is, as Zelensky has said, was going to be, I think, a very decisive one in, in this ongoing war. That's Associate Professor Will Partlett from the University of Melbourne, ending that report by Isabel Masali. This is PM with me, David Lipson. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. The new look, more open and accessible Reserve Bank had its first big test this week. An interest rate decision on Tuesday, followed by a live press conference, the early publication of major economic forecasts and an appearance by the governor before a parliamentary committee today. It's quite a week. The whole point of the busy timetable is for the governor to talk more publicly and to increase people's understanding of a policy that shapes daily spending decisions. But has it already backfired? David Taylor takes a look. Inflation may be coming down, but the fight to bring down the cost of living is yet to be won. Here's RBA Governor Michelle Bullock speaking to the House of Representatives Standing Committee today. In summary, while there's some encouraging signs, Australia's inflation challenge isn't over. An inflation rate with a four in front of it isn't good enough and it's still some way from our, the midpoint of our target. The midpoint of the RBA's target is 2.5%. That is, the RBA wants annual inflation to fall from just over 4% to 2.5%. Progress is being made, but there's a problem. These are our central forecasts and there's a great deal of uncertainty around inflation outcomes that far out. Even if the economy evolves around this central path, Inflation will still have been outside the target range for four years. The longer inflation remains high and outside the target range, the greater is the risk that inflation expectations of households and businesses will adjust higher. Michelle Bullock worries inflation has been too much of a headache for shoppers for too long, and it's left many feeling as if the problem won't end anytime soon. During a press conference on Tuesday, she said this meant she couldn't rule out another interest rate hike. But she also said she wasn't ruling anything in or out. And AMP's chief economist, Shane Oliver, says in front of the parliamentary committee today, she seemed to say something different again. The commentary that we got from the parliamentary testimony from Governor Bullock was more along the lines in, we haven't ruled in a rate hike and we haven't and neither have we ruled it out, which is slightly different. That impl implies that it's either no change or a hike. 
uh, whereas on Tuesday it looked like it could go either way. Uh, and now, of course, you could argue, well, that's the problem with having multiple uh, forums uh, within a few days apart. Uh, you, you can end up with this confusion. Shane Oliver says Michelle Bullock risks confusing the public more by speaking more. Well, to be honest with you, I was always a bit sceptical about the changes because I, I felt that having more communication uh, forums on or around interest rate moves could lead to more confusion. Do you think there is uh, more confusion this week? Look, to be honest with you, I must admit, you know, he has ended up a little bit more confused than I would have thought. Normally what would have happened, of course, is that we would have had the statement on the Tuesday and a statement of monetary policy, people would have interpreted from that what they want and then we would have had the perhaps the House Parliamentary uh, Economics Committee um, testimony on the Friday, but obviously that's less opportunities for confusion, whereas what's happened is that we've had two events where the governor spoke and they, you know, some would interpret those two events as giving a slightly, as giving a slightly different um, messaging. But Michelle Bullock was crystal clear on one thing today. She says the RBA won't wait until inflation is back between 2 and 3% before cutting interest rates. Do we have to be absolutely in the band before we start uh, thinking about, if we think monetary policy is restrictive now, which we think it is, mm -hmm. um, there's a question comes about when do we reduce the restrictiveness back more to neutral? And do we have to be in the band at 2.5% before we think about doing that? No, I don't believe we do. A Reserve Bank official will next front the public at a conference on Tuesday. David Taylor. Walking into an emergency department and being asked to swipe your credit card before a doctor sees you sounds like some sort of American health system nightmare. But it's happening here and now in Australia. And the patients who opt in actually seem pretty happy about the service they receive. As emergency wait times in public hospitals continue to get longer, private providers have spotted a gap, stepping in with new, fast, efficient emergency clinics that you and your family can access for a few hundred dollars per visit. Here's Jacqueline Breen. You can pull up and park for free on site outside this standalone clinic next to a shopping centre in Sydney's northwest. Then it's through the glass doors into a waiting room that's quiet and calm. All of a sudden they enter and saying, wow, we are not in a stress environment anymore. This is Wise Medical, short for walk-in specialist emergency. It's the brainchild and business of Dr Pankaj Arora and a handful of emergency medicine colleagues who opened it in 2017. And so our waiting rooms don't look like waiting rooms, they look like lounges. Coffee there, has to have fruits there, biscuits there. The aim is for a senior doctor to see you within five to ten minutes of arrival, like Dr George, who's on shift today. You never know what's going to walk through the door. I can see anything from an unwell three-month-old child who's having fevers to a 90-year-old patient who might need to be admitted to a hospital. 30% of their patients are kids, many with the kind of issues no busy parent wants to spend hours in a hospital emergency department waiting to deal with. Oh, anything. You put anything up your nose. Beads, plasticine, special toys, anything. Um, we can remove most stuff from a nose. There's fast turnaround x-ray, ultrasound, CT and pathology on site as well. All of it designed to get you in and out the door in around half the time that the average patient is now spending in public hospital EDs, going by the latest figures from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. But, of course, there's a catch. And this um, 
this model in itself is designed in a way that first the patient themselves have to contribute $260 to their care. It's $260 upfront out of pocket. Dr. Aurora says there are no hidden costs on top of that. Yeah, so it's a shared cost model where there is a patient contributing to their health and also Medicare contributing to the health. A second clinic has been operating on the Gold Coast in Queensland for a year now. Dr. Aurora says demand is high and they plan to open three more Sydney clinics and one in Perth over the next two years. A user pays emergency department might sound somewhat American. And as a standalone facility, it is unusual in the Australian system, according to former Queensland Chief Health Officer Jerry Fitzgerald, who's now Emeritus Professor at the University of Queensland. But he points out EDs have been at private hospitals for decades. It's not surprising per se, because obviously 40% of our hospital beds across the country are in private hospitals. So we're quite familiar with the history of private hospitals and the role that they play in our healthcare system. Uh, What is unusual is specialist-based centres in the community separated from hospitals. They perhaps could be best described as experimental at this stage. He says financial viability could be an issue for standalone EDs. The reason they're considered worthwhile at private hospitals is because they funnel patients into the hospital. There's also a safety issue. If patients turn up with more serious problems than the clinic can handle and then need to be transferred to hospital, the WISE clinic says it makes it clear that it's a walk-in clinic and doesn't accept ambulance drop-offs and its clinics are located close to major hospitals. So is there an obvious question about financial equity and whether it's fair that only those who can afford it get this quick quality care? Well, I suppose there always is with our healthcare system, isn't it? We do have a dual system, a private and public system, and what Medicare does provide is guaranteed access, but at times we uh, we have to wait for that access. And, you know, you could argue philosophically if the wealthier people reduce their burden on the public system and makes it more accessible for those who can't afford it. So there's a whole bag of philosophical arguments to be made, I think, on both sides of the occasion, but I'm a little bit more fatalistic in saying it's what we've got. In the public system, the federal government says all 58 of its promised bulk build urgent care clinics are now up and running across the country. Jacqueline Breen there. Australia's long been touted as a world leader in the uptake of rooftop solar energy, but advocates say an outdated system is making it difficult for people to get the full financial benefits and compete with big energy companies. It follows the release of a landmark report which calls for Australia's electricity market to better integrate solar users and give them more options to find good deals when selling their energy back to the grid. Gavin Coote reports. When Trent Amber started off as an electrical apprentice about 12 years ago, he had no idea how big rooftop solar would become. Now we're at a point where it is, it's huge, it's huge, everyone's talking about it. It's something that's going to continue to grow. Trent Amber runs a solar design and installation business in the Illawarra region south of Sydney. While the switch to solar is paying off for many of his customers, a big complaint is how little money they're getting for feeding the energy back into the grid. The peak energy rates at the moment, which are typically when most homeowners are home during the during the afternoon and night, are huge. I've seen as big as 75 cents a kilowatt hour to pull from the grid at night. The feed-in tariff, which is when you send excess solar power to the grid, that is at an all-time low. So it just doesn't seem very fair that we're sending all this solar power back to the grid during the day and being paid peanuts for it, and then we're paying so much at night for it or so even homeowners that don't have solar are still paying quite a bit for energy that's been provided by the people that 
do actually have solar and have sent it back to the grid. So, yeah, it's definitely not fair. It's a problem that's been identified in a newly released report by the Energy Security Board. In its final act, before being disbanded by federal and state energy ministers, the board called for a radical overhaul of the system. The report argues household solar needs to be better integrated into the grid to fully harness its potential. Essentially what's happening is Australia's millions of solar households aren't being allowed to compete against their energy company in the market. Dan Cass is Executive Director of Advocacy Group Rewiring Australia. He agrees an overhaul of the electricity market is long overdue. The issue is that rooftop solar was not envisaged when the market was designed. The electricity market that we have, the national electricity market that covers most of the country, was designed before low-cost solar energy was available. It was designed around large coal and gas generators and hydro. And it's not difficult to integrate rooftop solar and to use people's households as power stations. It's just a matter of the decision makers in the regulatory bodies deciding that this is the way to go and writing the right rules. Dan Cass points out it's not only owners of household solar that would benefit from a fairer system. And the prize here is rooftop solar in Australia at five cents a kilowatt hour is the cheapest form of energy in the world bar none. So we, we are already the leader in rooftop solar. It's the cheapest form of energy in the world. And so really what we should do is of Rewiring Australia is advocating designing um, household-centred rules for the market that allow households to trade in the market like their energy companies, if you like. So you might generate solar during the day that's more than you need, so then you could sell it to your neighbour who doesn't have solar panels because they live in a flat, for example. Some owners of household solar are already playing an active role as traders in the energy market. Mark Purcell's home on Queensland's Sunshine Coast is powered by solar panels and he signed up to what's called a wholesale power retailer. While it comes with its risks, he points out it also has big benefits. Because everybody is running their, their air conditioning and, and other things, the price of electricity has just shot through the roof. And because I have batteries on my house, um, I've actually been able to export from my batteries and, and the solar energy that I uh, that I had during the day and, and, and sometimes in this month I've been exporting for $10 a kilowatt hour. So my electricity bill for, for January was actually a credit for $330. In response to the Energy Security Board's recommendations, state and federal energy ministers are now looking at better regulating rooftop solar. PM has contacted the Peak Body Energy Networks Australia for comment. Gavin Coote there. Well, that's the program for this week. Thanks for joining us here on PM. PM's producer is David Sparks. Technical production by Lena El-Sadi, David Sargent and Joel Cassam. I'm David Lipson. Don't forget you can find all our interviews and reports on the PM webpage. We will be back on Monday evening. Until then, have a good evening and good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. When three American soldiers were killed in a drone attack on a US base in Jordan, there was a flurry of talk of World War III. It may have been over the top, but the stakes in the conflict in the Middle East have risen dramatically. Today, host of the Iran podcast, Nagar Mortazavi, on what could come next. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener.